As you remain standing, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our evening series of studies through this joy-filled letter. We come to the last four verses of chapter 1 tonight, verse 27 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that text on page 980 in a chairback Bible that should be nearby you. Let me read the passage for us and, and then I'll pray for God's blessing, and then we'll begin together. So let us hear once again as God again speaks to us through His perfect Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace and mercy that gathers us even now this evening, speaks to us even still through your word. May the sovereign grace of your spirit open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this truth, that we may indeed live worthy of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of the rather constant things that, by God's grace, belongs to Uh, being part of a church-planting church is there's seemingly never a week that goes by uh, without someone asking me how a Redeemer church plant is doing or without someone telling me how a Redeemer church plant is doing. I was uh, sitting down for lunch with a pastor in our presbytery earlier on this week, and it's been quite a while since we caught up, and one of the first questions that he asked was, how's the church plant uh, doing? And we, of course, come to the book of Philippians, knowing that this is a church that Paul planted. Several years, many years even, have passed by since he was last with him. He's in prison in Rome, and Paul, the church planter, wants to know how the church is doing. As he says, if I come to you, I want to see something is true about you. Or if I'm absent, I want to hear that something is true about you. So it's not merely that Paul wants to know something about the church there at Philippi tonight. What he's going to go on and do is actually tell the church at Philippi what he wants to see, what he wants to hear about their life together. Of course, reminding us that one of the key questions that belongs to any church's life together is not, will we have a reputation? Uh, The better question is, what will our reputation be? in the community, to the watching world, even before other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And Paul's answer in terms of what he desires for the church at Philippi's reputation to be, and no doubt by extension under the Spirit's inspiration, what he desires every church's reputation to be, is simply summarized in those first phrases of verse 27, that it would be a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to be true about the church of Philippi. That's what he wants to be true, no doubt, of any church, that they be known for a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's not only going to tell us that it should be worthy of Christ's gospel, but he's going to tell us how it should be worthy of Christ's gospel as we go about standing 
as we go about striving and as we go about suffering. And what you need to recognize, even though it's tucked away there at the end of chapter 1 in our English Bibles, verse 27 represents a significant shift at this point in the letter, as the first 26 verses have all been consumed with, with Paul's experience, with Paul's updates. It's almost a missionary report from prison. As he's reminded them of his joy in their gospel partnership, he's told them the ways in which he's praying for them to grow in Jesus Christ. He's reminded them that his change there in Rome has actually served to advance the gospel as the gospel is being proclaimed with more boldness. And it's in that proclamation of Jesus Christ, he says, that he rejoices. And as we looked at last week, that led him to a great announcement of his resolution there in prison, that even in life and in death, Christ is his only focus, as he said, to live Christ and to die gain. But you might remember where he left off last week there at the end of 25 and 26 is that he told the church of Philippi he was convinced that he wasn't going to die, that he was going to remain with them, as he said in verse 25 at the end, for your progress and joy in the faith. So it's almost as though now in verse 27, he turns his attention to the church at Philippi and for the rest of the letter, except for two key moments, it has nothing to do with Paul and has everything to do with Paul's instruction to the Philippians about their life in Jesus Christ. So it's here really in verse 27 that we get his thesis for their life together, which is meant to be a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he says about that kind of worthy living is that it means standing. It means standing for Christ. So notice again verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's important, students, for you to understand this idea of worth in that ancient world. Even thinking about worthy in its original root of worth is perhaps a, a better way of thinking about what Paul is after here because it's speaking about two things that match each other. Uh, a word picture that you could use along with the original word is the, the picture of weights where you have something on each side of a scale and it's meant to balance. Uh, one is worthy of the other and it equals in weight. And so what Paul is saying is that the weight of our life in Christ is meant to, to balance the weight of God's glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the, the weight of our love for Christ is meant to match in some way the love for Jesus Christ as it's portrayed in the gospel. And he says the first part of that worthy living is standing in unity. You see verse 27, he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Our kids, that, that language there of standing firm, it would picture in that first century world a Roman army digging in for the fight. It's actually a militant word. And that's true, isn't it, of the church in, in the state of unity to which we are called, that we are digging in together for our life in service to the Lord with, with one mind, he says, and with one spirit. Uh, even the phrase there, with one mind, it actually more literally means in the original, one soul such as the unity that should belong to God's people. There's this soul connection and that belongs to Jesus Christ. We could say even quite reverently, couldn't we, that in the church of Jesus Christ, you find soul mates, such as the nature of the gospel's work. I wonder if you would ever say that you have had such an experience of that kind of deep unity in a church. Because, of course, the witness of church history is... I suppose far too many Christians 
professing Christians have experienced more discord, division, and dissension than unity. And I spent most of this weekend with a lot of seminary students thinking about the realities of Christian spirituality throughout church history. And we mentioned many times how a huge swath of church history understood that the truly spiritual and most devotional disciples of Jesus Christ were monks. And if you know anything about the monks and the nuns, what they would do is, of course, leave their town, they would leave their village, they would leave their city, and they would go out into the middle of nowhere. It was there that they believed that only there they could find church unity because in their village church, in their town assembly, and their city congregation, it was just difficulty. It was just division. So they needed to have a monastery somewhere out in the mountains. They needed to go out into the desert. They needed to go out into the wilderness because there they could actually find a Christian unity. And many people today, don't you know, maybe have left churches because they can't find unity. They can't find agreement. When what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us is the place where you should be able to find Soul agreement, mind unity, spiritual delight is in the church. It's even a good thing, isn't it, to examine your own heart tonight as you think about your spiritual skill in building unity? I mean, are you a person that's good in building unity, uh, creating that kind of knit-together-like soul in a congregation? Or do you seem to have a talent in tearing down through grumbling and complaining? And it's important, even you notice there in verse 27, he emphasizes twice this, this one spirit and this, this one mind. That's the language he's going to use in other letters that he speaks about. And it basically is rooting our reality of unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That personal preferences can't ever unify. Secondary positions, even tertiary positions, they're never meant to unify. What's meant to unify God's people is the faith that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So living worthy means standing for Christ. And we see number two, as the text continues, it also means striving for Christ, as verse 27 ends, notice he calls us to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving, it's also an athletic word, it's an army word, it means something like fighting. Last night I was watching one of the kids playing a soccer game and on the way home, we were talking about the game, I, I, I tried to be as quiet as I can from the sidelines and I just let the game pass as it goes and let the coach coach, and then we get in the car, then I can give my comments along the way. And uh, I told the son in mind on the way back that I really didn't care how the result went. But what, what I cared about and was concerned about is there's no fight in the team. There's no urgency. There was no intensity. There's no striving that belonged to the collective group. And Paul's saying he would be concerned, wouldn't he, if he shows up in Philippi and, and there's no fight. There's no urgency. There's no intensity. We have to make sure, don't we, that according to the text, we realize the content of our striving. Because he says there at the end of verse 27 that we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That we're not fighting for things that don't have eternal weight and significance. We're striving side by side for the faith that only the gospel can bring about. That faith in Jesus Christ that comes through the preaching of the gospel. That we fight for the right things. We fight for the necessary things. We, we fight for the eternal things. I wonder what you tend to fight about most in the church. Uh, what you tend to strive for most earnestly in the church. 
And Paul's not merely concerned about the, the content of the striving, but he's also concerned, notice as verse 28 begins, the courage in striving. He says that we must not be frightened in anything by opponents. Uh, the word for frightened uh, children, uh, it would have been used at that ancient time of speaking about Roman horses that were spooked in battle. You know, they were, they were startled when a sudden noise or, or siege began or an army attacked. And so what he seems to be telling us in our life in Christ when we face opponents for our striving in the gospel, we're not to be spooked in our striving, startled in our fighting by anyone or anything and he wants to give us some degree of assurance for why we can actually be that kind of bold, why that we can be that kind of courageous in our fighting, because you notice verse 28 tells us this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, our not being frightened in the fight. But it's a sign also of your salvation, he says, and that from God. So it's one of these parts of Philippians that you have to ask questions of what exactly does Paul mean by that, that we in our fearless striving for the faith of the gospel... And in the face of opposition, it's something of a sign. We could say, even switching the metaphor, I suppose, it's something of a sermon that's proclaimed. Judgment to the opposition, salvation to the Christian. And it's this side that makes sense, because if you know even Jesus' words himself, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Other texts in the New Testament that will speak about opposition for faith in the gospel is something of a sign of our adoption into God's family. It's this kind of seal that belongs to salvation. You should expect to face opposition. Of course, he wouldn't be commanding us to strive if he wasn't expecting us to face opposition. But what does it mean that our courageous stand, our courageous striving, actually means we, we almost preach a sermon of judgment against the opposition. It's a sign of their destruction, he says, what does Paul mean by that? And I've always kind of thought that perhaps the best way to illustrate it is, is think about what so often happens when Christians suffer publicly for their faith in Jesus Christ. They get an audience, don't they, with the unbelieving world. That certainly in this kind of first century persecution and opposition, that unbelievers see there's something different about these people. Uh, that they'll stand up and stand strong and stand out when all the hardship continues to bear down on them. They begin to notice that maybe they believe something that we don't. Maybe they hold to something that, they, that we don't. Maybe there's a solemn gravity that belongs to the soul. I actually think you can illustrate this best throughout Christian history by just noticing all these martyr stories that belong to the courageous saints of old that strove for the faith of the gospel to the very flame that would consume them and the, the opposition there in the world that was actually executing them would somehow stand back and notice, well, there's something different that I'm observing there. And certainly in a mysterious sense, in the sovereignty of God, it's a sermon, it's a sign that's being proclaimed because again, verse 28 ends by telling us this is from God. That there's something mysterious and I suppose even majestic happening when Christians stand firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents. So students, I wonder if you've had any occasion in this school year to stand up in the face of opponents that decry the gospel of our Lord. Have you been frightened by anyone? Have you been frightened by anything? And Paul says, of course, living worthy of the gospel means striving side by side, not frightened by anything. Thirdly, he says, 
Living worthy of the gospel means suffering for Christ. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I remember sitting next to uh, a cousin with whom I, I remain quite close even to this day on a Christmas day long ago. And as many of your families might do, ours was uh, the gifts that were given to each of the nephews and the nieces, you know, were assigned by this kind of random lottery. And, and my, my cousin realized that the extended family member that had received his name was a particular extended family member that was known for giving gifts that the niece and nephew never wanted. And so when he saw the box there in front of him, I remember him murmuring under his breath something like, it's going to be hard to be thankful for that. And what he meant by that was this particular family member would never buy the niece or nephew something they wanted, but would always get the niece or nephew something they needed. And he was wondering, how can I be thankful for something I need but I didn't want? And in a similar way, what Paul's actually doing in verse 29 is helping us know how, how we can be thankful for something we need. Suffering. But don't ever want because you see the word there in verse 29 of granted. It's actually the word from which we get other words in the New Testament about grace. You can say it's been graced upon you to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever known that not only is suffering necessary in the Christian life, because the New Testament makes that clear, doesn't it? But it's a gracious thing to suffer for Jesus Christ. He says, if you doubt the grace that belongs to suffering, notice the connection he makes to the grace in salvation. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the same sovereign grace that belongs to salvation is the same sovereign grace that brings suffering in your life. Even Calvin would say, what change would belong to our piety if we understood this providence of God? A grace that brings suffering. How can suffering be gracious from God? Well, I hope you know that it'd be quite difficult for us to expect to depend upon God if we never needed anything from him, like comfort, like provision. We wouldn't know his healing power if we weren't ever broken. We wouldn't know his calming power if the anxiety of the trial never rose. We wouldn't know the absolute faithfulness to every one of his promises if the chaos didn't come into our life. But of course, by connecting this grace, not only to suffering and also to salvation, means that for some of you in the room tonight, perhaps actually uh, the question isn't so much, are you suffering according to God's grace? Because some of you might be. Uh, maybe more pertinent is the question, are you saved according to this same grace? Uh, the grace that, of course, has come down in the person of Jesus Christ, the person for whom the text says, saved for his sake, suffering for his sake. And notice there's even a communal element in the suffering, verse 30. He says, we're engaged in the same conflict, these Philippians, that you saw that I had, and now here that I still have. Uh, one of the realities that so often uh, sh strikes us in terms of Satan's strategies in the sufferings is he wants to isolate you in the opposition. He wants to isolate you in the intimidation. He wants to isolate you in the hardship to think you're the only one that is suffering in this way. 
Therefore, nobody can possibly understand your pain. Therefore, nobody can possibly minister to you. And what is Paul saying? No, actually, because of our union in Jesus Christ, when, when we suffer, we're participating in the suffering that's belonged to the church throughout the ages. That suffering that Paul has in chains in Rome is something that the Philippians have joined in, in their own standing firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you ever find yourself, perhaps students, perhaps children, standing firm in the truth, you're fighting for the faith of Christ, you're opposed, you have people that are wanting to bring you down. Recognize that you've just joined in the army of Jesus Christ, soldiers of innumerable number throughout the nations, suffering in the same way. So standing united in Jesus Christ, striving for the gospel's faith, or suffering according to Christ's grace, well, this is what it means to, to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might know the name of a historian named Stephen Ambrose. He arose to incredible prominence uh, several decades back when he published his book, Band of Brothers, that became this smashing success of a miniseries. In one of his other popular books that certainly tried to tell the story of World War II more broadly uh, was one that focused on American soldiers, particularly in the European theater. And in the book's prologue, he said this, uh, largely referring to the book's title, he said, this book is about those in the U.S. Army and Air Forces. It's not a book about generals. It's a book about the GIs, the ordinary men of the European theater of operations, who they were, how they fought, what they endured, how they triumphed. And he said they were, as the title of his book announces, citizen soldiers. And what Paul is telling the Philippians is you two in Jesus Christ are citizen soldiers. And I want to show you that in two final ways as we come to the end. The first is I want you to notice from the beginning of verse 27, the politics of living worthy of the gospel. You see in our ESV translation, it says, let your manner of life uh, other translations would render that as something like, let your conduct, the King James Version, let your conversation, or even a more recent translation would say, let your citizenship. Because it's a word, just actually one word in the original language, that gives us like our word of politics or police. Uh, Paul recognizes that in that Roman Empire of the first century, Philippi was a very prideful Roman colony. If you had met a Philippian citizen, they would have marched around with great pride and great self-importance upon their mouth. I am a citizen of Philippi. And Paul's beginning to subvert the politics of the time by saying, no, no, no. you belong to a different king. You belong to a different kingdom. You abide by his rule. You abide by his law, which is why in just about a page's time in this book, he's going to remind them that their citizenship is not here on earth. Their citizenship is not there in Philippi. Their citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And so there is a political reality of the Christian life, but it's quite different than most people think it is. It's belonging to the king of kings, following him in the way that the world can't understand, standing back at all the standing of unity, looking in and awe and all the striving for the faith of the gospel, wondering how is it that they can suffer so well. We have a different political regime, don't we? But it's not just the politics. Notice also the priority of lives worthy of the gospel. Don't, don't miss the first word in the passage. Only. Uh, one commentator would say something like, it's got this force of this one thing and this thing only. So Philippians, this one thing 
And this one thing only I want to hear about you. This one thing and this one thing only I want to see within you. Standing in unity. Striving for the faith. Suffering for Jesus Christ. This one thing and this one thing only. That is what we must pray be true even of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in McKinney, Texas. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would work even these very realities into our life. And that we would find our chief treasure, our greatest delight in the simple realities of a Son. Your beloved Son, given for us, redeeming us by his blood, and now empowering us by his Spirit to live for him. Worthy of that good news. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.